So on a few occasions, I've been to some um, Shakespeare plays and some musicals. And I tell you that for a few reasons. One is you need to know you have a cultured pastor who does things like this. Uh, in all seriousness, that's like the furthest description I would give myself. But no, the reason I say that is because when I have gone to some of these plays or these musicals, it takes a minute for me, maybe because I'm slow, but it takes a minute for me to figure out exactly what's going on. So sometimes it's because there is an accent or because there's a story you're just dropped right in the middle of and you're trying to make sense of the characters and who's involved in that. Sometimes it's a different time period or even a very different culture than our own. And so your mind has to adapt. It takes a few minutes, at least for me, it takes a few minutes to adapt to exactly, okay, what is the story? But within a few minutes, I feel like, okay, I'm able to process what's going on. I'm able to really, really enjoy all of what is going on. In my mind, there's something really similar going on when it comes to reading God's Word, especially especially the Old Testament, especially a book like Second Chronicles. So it's just a different world for us. We hear stories of, in Second Chronicles, which is where we've been for the last couple of weeks. We hear stories of kings and priests and shrines and statues and prophets and invading armies and all of this. It takes a little bit to figure out exactly where we are. It's a different world, but I want to tell you, I, we can make those adjustments. And we can, it may take a few minutes, but we can live in that world and appreciate wisdom that we can glean from some of these ancient stories. But I would say even beyond just wisdom that we could glean, we can hear God speak to us through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do that. God can enlighten our, enlighten our minds, our, our eyes to see what's being read. So I, I say that because, again, we're going to... Um, we're going to put in some of the work of getting into a portion of the Old Testament that isn't always Im immediately adaptable to life in Newark in 2021, or at least not immediately recognizable. This morning, I want you to hear about King Hezekiah. So he's going to be the bright spot. Uh, we've, been, we've been looking at dark places where the Lord shines a very bright light, and Hezekiah is going to be that bright spot for today. But to really, really appreciate the life of King Hezekiah, you actually have to know a little bit about his dad. His dad, who is King Ahaz, that's Ahaz with a Z, not a B. Ahab's a, a different king. But Ahaz is his dad, and you hear his story, actually not in Second Chronicles 29, where we will be looking at today, but the chapter right before. And you can read about it in Second Kings 16. What the Bible presents Ahaz is a picture of a man who is a terrible influence. Just a little bit about his life. And again, I think you need to hear it to appreciate what God does through King Hezekiah. Ahaz rules about 16 years in the southern part of Israel in about 700 BC. He worked really, really hard at undermining everything everything that God would want. One writer has put it this way, Ahaz was one of those people who did everything he could to make sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. 
So as you, as you process his life, you, you quickly come across, this is a man who offered his sons, put them in a fire, his young sons, in a pagan ritual to be burned. He promoted shrines that where all kinds, all kinds of sex in the name of religion took place. He endorsed, promoted, encouraged. His world began to fall apart. And although he knew of God, Scripture clearly says that, he knew of the God of his fathers, he knew the God of David and Solomon. He made a conscious choice not to seek him, didn't think he needed him, didn't want him to have any involvement in his life. Eugene Peterson put it this way with King Ahaz, at the very time that everyone was turning against him, he continued to be against God. Gives you a snapshot into his life. As his life unraveled, as Israel's life unraveled, he looked at other nations who things were going well there and thought, well, I guess I need their gods and bring them over here. Like it seems to be going better there than here. And instead of looking to the one true God, he just tries to like adapt what they're doing and, and bring that into the nation of Israel. Something's working over there. Let's try that. He goes to the temple of the Lord, which we're going to talk about this more, but it's the centerpiece of Israel's worship. It's the centerpiece of all of Israel. And the only use he has for it is like, what's in here that I can bribe other kings with so they'll quit bothering me? And so he takes all the holy utensils that have been dedicated to the Lord, and he takes those and gives them as bribes. And, and then when that's done, he boards up the door of the temple and says, no need to meet with God anymore. We have no use for him here. Boards up the temple. He shuts it down. It's totally messed up. He leaves the country in ruins. At the end of Second Chronicles 28, it's almost like the nation says, good riddance. We need no more of your influence. And I needed you to hear that. And I'm going to ask Jim Manning to come. He's going to read in 2 Chronicles 29 because you're going to see a very different picture emerge in the life of his son, King Hezekiah. Let's hear from God's word in verse 1. Second Chronicles 29, 1 through 11. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priest and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, and you see, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. 
My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and make offerings to him. Thanks, Jim, for reading. There are so many themes in there that we could focus on. And I, I felt, I really wanted to sense like, what exactly does the Lord have to say to us today, but there's so many themes in the life of Hezekiah. One would just be, and I have to at least mention, you have to have some encouragement. This could ignite some hope for people who look at a family that's very dysfunctional. Maybe even a, a father's influence is terrible. And maybe this ignites hope that maybe just maybe the God who can do the impossible could work in a situation that seems absolutely hopeless. I just at least want to mention that. And if that's you, I pray that you will even go deeper into the story of Hezekiah and realize what God did in a seemingly impossible situation. And maybe you are panicked about the world we're living in. And maybe you're panicked about how it seems like it's getting darker and darker. And I do want to remind you that God can do some things in very unexpected ways. And so I just tell you, like, God has not given us that spirit of fear. So let's just be reminded again. And again, that's not going to be the main point of what I feel like God is teaching us. But I at least want to say, God is at work. And to which we should say, of course he is. Of course he is. He always is. Let's hear that loud and clear. But for our time, I really do want to draw our attention to something else. And it really comes from that verse 10. That verse 10 where I just want to highlight the beginning of that verse where Hezekiah as he is instituting all sorts of changes and things that are different and things that are for the better, he says, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel. Now it is in my heart. And what I want us to see is that something's going on in Hezekiah's heart. The story of Hezekiah is one that is actually going to be a lot of actions there's a lot of things that are going to be done, a lot of activity in chapter 29 and chapter 30 and 31 and 32. There's going to be a lot of activity, but I want you to see what drove that activity was something that God was doing in Hezekiah's heart. And this is the connection I want us to make, and we're going we're to see this uh, again and again, that God's work in our hearts shows up in our actions. Do we have that? That God's work in our hearts shows up in our actions. I want us to draw a line there, and we can be careful about this. This will not be a rant for us to clean up our outward appearance and our outward actions. That's not what this is about. And I, and I, I imagine we could, we could do this all wrong and get something that Jesus did not intend and go, oh, so we better behave. And I, I would rather you see if God is doing something in your heart, which I pray regularly that he does in my heart and in our hearts, then inevitably there are going to be some actions that come out of that. God's work in our hearts shows up in our actions. So maybe it's helpful to like see that in the Hezekiah story that maybe we can make some comparisons that'll help us in our own lives. What happens when God goes to work in our hearts and we see that there is a distance or a separation from God? So again, I'm talking about what happens when God does a work in our hearts and we recognize there is some sort of distance. We recognize there's separation from God. So I think the way I see that in the Hezekiah story is Hezekiah, I mean, so he's 25 years old when he becomes king. I wonder how many years went by where he walked by the temple 
and noticed it was all boarded up. Noticed that it was closed down. Signaling like, no meeting with God here. That is from the times past. When he walked by a temple that, in the language of Chronicles, had been defiled, Hezekiah surely knew his Israelite history and knew the temple was there. It's kind of a central, central reminder that God is with his people right in the middle. So yes, he's the God of heavens, of course. But right in the middle of his people, God is with them. That was the tabernacle. That was the reminder of the temple. That God would meet with his people. And yet Hezekiah walks by this and it's closed. And eventually that works on his heart and it is in his heart, Scripture says, to do something about the separation from God that was on display by the doors being closed. And for Hezekiah, that meant in verse 3, that in the, did you notice the time frame here? In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he also, according to verses 12 to 14, he gathers people in Chronicles. Like, I love this about Chronicles. It, it lists their names. It was like real human beings were influenced as well. And in verse 15, he gathers these people together. He gathered their brothers. And it says in verse 15, they consecrate themselves and they went in as the king had commanded them. Doors are open. They go in by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And not only did they open the doors, but now they're bringing things out. They brought out all the uncleanness. I think verse 5 calls it the filth that had accumulated. The defiling things. They, all that that they found in the temple. And they brought it in the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it from there and carried it out to the brook Kidron. In verse 18 it says, And then they went to Hezekiah the king and they said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord. We've cleansed the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils. And the table for the showbread, the bread of the presence, and all its utensils. All the utensils that your dad, King Ahaz, discarded in his reign when he was faithless. We've made ready and we've consecrated, we've hallowed them, we've made them holy, we've set them apart. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. What happens? Yeah, what happens when we recognize distance or separation and God goes to work on that? What happened there is doors get opened and like... I want you to see, like, these are real actions. So we can talk all we want about a spiritual dimension, but I want to move that over into the behaviors and attitudes and actions that actually take place. And what happens is something is done about that. Things that had been defiled are now getting cleaned. Doors opening, things getting cleansed. That is the sound of God at work. How do we, how do we bring that into 2021. So I can tell one application that we're not going to make today is like, well, this is all for church work days and we got some doors that we need fixed. So can we get a volunteer to, as much as I'm all for the doors being open, you know, we have worship services. That's not the application. And that's not the application because these walls, they don't constitute the temple since Jesus has come. You know what the temple is since Jesus has come? You are, if you're a follower of Jesus. The people of God are. So these buildings are very important to me, but 
but the people of God are infinitely more important. You are the temple. Your body, 1 Corinthians 6, is the temple. Ephesians 2 says we are being built together as the temple. So when we gather together, we are the temple of God. So what does it mean to open the doors of that temple? What does it mean to open the doors of our heart? To say, God, we want to meet with you. And what does it mean to begin to take all the things that should not be in our lives individually or collectively, and to begin to take it out. I think it's an important thing that we hear. When God works on our heart, actions show up. It's a good mental picture. Because there are things that accumulate in our lives. Like maybe no one even set out for them to be there. There are habits, there are patterns of the world, mindsets. I don't know that we intentionally adopt it from the world. Things that actually make like righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. We begin to acquire those things. It's part of living in this world. There are spending habits that I'd say, why do you spend your money on that? And you go, I, I don't, I, that's just what people do. There are values that we have that, why do you have those? Ah, well, I mean, everybody else seems to. There are hopes and dreams you have for your kids. Why do you have those? Well, I mean, it's just, isn't that what everybody wants? I wonder, as God goes to work on our hearts, do we begin to see like that, that thing that I watch, that thing that I do? Why, why exactly is that there? It's not having a positive influence. It's actually having a contaminating influence on my life. And is it time to bring some of those things out. Is it time for that relationship that frankly you know drags you away from God? And you can kid yourself in that, like, well, I'm really being a good influence here, but the people closest to you know, the people that love the Lord that are closest to you, they would tell you something very, very different about exactly what's getting influenced. And I wonder if a, a picture would be relationships come to an end where they 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 change significantly because can two walk together if they're not agreed? And you realize the central priority of my life should be this, but this person is going in that direction. And I mean, I do wonder if that would be what God would call on you. I don't have a list of like 75 things that must be carried out today. I mean, I don't know that. I, I couldn't give you that list. We're way too different. Our lives are way too complicated. But I have to think if we did inventory in our own bodies, in our own hearts, and we began to look at that and that and that. Surely God would say, what is that doing here? And isn't it time for that to go? Frankly, that is like very unsettling. But I've seen it happen again and again at Ogletown, where a life begins to change. Priorities begin to shift. And what never would have even been on your radar a year ago or two years, like God brings it front and center, and it really does become, are you, going to, are you going to live in obedience? Or is it just going to be more of King Ahaz? Bar up the temple and leave it cluttered and defiled. I, I want you to prayerfully consider what God's doing. I am saying that there's sometimes things go on in our heart, and 
if they're really working, then there are going to be things that change. An internet search history that looks different. There are things that are going to change. If it's helpful. So almost every Sunday morning, because I'm a creature of habit, partly, but almost every Sunday morning, I put this watch on. And I put this watch on not just because I'm a creature of habit, but as I put this watch on every Sunday, this was my dad's watch. And every, every Sunday, I put it on, and it's yet another tangible reminder of someone who meant the world to me. And I do this, and I have an action, but the action is attached to my heart. And I wonder in a small way if God might this week begin to point things out and go, you say I've done a work in your heart, but shouldn't this action, shouldn't that bank account statement, shouldn't this look, shouldn't how you spend your time, shouldn't the closest people that are friends in your life, shouldn't this look different? You see the connection between what's going on in our heart and then the actions that follow. I want to magnify it in another way in the life of Hezekiah. I want to ask another question. So what happens when God works in your heart and you're, you realize how stuck you are in your sin without atonement or forgiveness? What happens there when you realize that all of sin's promises is, have, have really left you feeling pretty stuck? You see, what happened in the time of Ahaz is they decided we're going to close down the, the temple and we're going to offer sacrifices. We're just not going to offer them to the one true God who we've always worshipped. We're going to offer them to any other God that may help because those gods we can manipulate and we can, we can kind of craft them into what we want them to be. But God, you only take him on, your, on his terms, not your own. But see, that offers like no help and no hope of sin being dealt with, being forgiven, being covered. We can play all the mental games we want. You can rewrite, I can rewrite and relabel and go, well, it's not that bad. I mean, get with the times that used to be people thought that was, it's not anymore clearly. And yet there's so many places where God has spoken so clearly. And we think we can downplay what God calls right and what God calls wrong, but God has uh, hardwired every single human being with a conscience. And you can try to dismantle it and sear it. And that's only going to be to your detriment. But when that conscience starts firing, you can tell yourself, yeah, I'm just going to live my truth. But that, that has a real quick expiration date on even it being somewhat valuable and useful to you. Like quickly, that's just not going to work. Not when you're dealing with shame and guilt. And you tell yourself, it's not that big of a deal. Not that many people were hurt. I'm okay. It's not, I mean, you can only play those mental games so long. So what, what happens when you're stuck? Well, I know what happened in Hezekiah's time when he comes like face to face that we are in our sin and we need forgiveness and atonement. He looks to the only one who can provide that forgiveness and atonement and that is God. I can't make believe my way out of my sin and my shame, and my guilt. And I don't have to. Because God has provided forgiveness and atonement. 
Actually, in the time of Hezekiah, it looked literally bloody. And I actually want us to get a picture. Again, this is crossing cultures here. To our modern ears, this is going to sound like very, very different. And Jesus changed things. But I want you to hear when Hezekiah realizes we have sinned against God. We have turned our back on him. This is what happens in verse 21. So again, it gets real tangible here. It gets really physical and literal. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom of for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. Just notice the cadence here. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering, the sin offering, should be made for all Israel. And, and skip down to verse 31. It says, Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices, bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. This is what happens when you realize we are stuck in our sin, but God has provided a way of atonement and forgiveness. This is what happened for Hezekiah. And it's a brutal picture, isn't it? Like every loss of life there is communicating. This is serious. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. It's like hardwired so that we would be prepared. We would be prepared for something else. Because God had worked in Hezekiah's heart. The offerings happen. The next chapter is such an amazing chapter. I love chapter 30 because it's about... The Passover that gets reinstated, the Passover that communicates in our own sin, we're left before a holy God without any hope of survival. But the Passover reminds for the people of God who rely on his work, there is covering and atonement and protection. God on your own terms means you face judgment and wrath. But God in grace provides covering and protection as we rely on him. For us, it's different from bulls, rams, lambs, goats. There won't be any like, oh, at one o'clock, we're all going to meet at the altar on the south parking lot, and, you know, we've got a few goats, and I mean, it, it won't happen. Why won't it happen? Hebrews 10 tells us why it won't happen, because the old system was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Hebrews 10 says that the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but it was never able to provide perfect cleansing to those who came. If it could have provided perfect cleansing, they would have stopped the sacrifices. The shame and guilt would have disappeared, but instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. But it's not possible for, bulls, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. For God's will, Hebrews 10, verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I do know when we grasp that deep in our hearts, things change. It changes our perspective. 
We quit trying to perform and we do quit trying to pretend. And we lean, like we were led earlier, like Emma, we lean wholly on Jesus' name. Christ, the solid rock I stand. Where else would I stand? We focus our attention on the cross and we confess our sins. We don't wake up in the morning going, how perfect do I have to be to maintain some sort of relationship with God? We confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We focus our attention on the cross and we go, I, you know, I, I got to accomplish a lot of things, but God forbid I should glory in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Why would I glory in anything else? Why would I like have my trophy case that I'm so proud of and go, the most important things are these when the cross speaks such a definitive word over my life. No, that's the most important thing is what Christ has done for me. There is one other dimension of this and we won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see it. Because again, we're looking at something happens with our heart and it just drives different actions. It drives different priorities and decisions. And lots of things look different downstream. I, I do want to think through what happens when God works in our heart and we realize we have a history. We see our history of worshiping other things. What happens then? What happens when a nation, when King Hezekiah realizes we've been following all the gods of the nations. We've been saying like, if you, if you really want to get yourself security, you're going to have to rely on this. And if you're really going to get what you want, you're going to have to rely on this. And peace, oh, that only comes through this. What happens when you get an awareness of that? Because they've been worshiping like anything and everything, finding peace, security, and hope in everything else. It's like Hezekiah just jams on the brake and says, we are going to take down all these idols and all these like false, false objects of worship. So literally, I mean, there's work that goes on. We're going to get all of this out, and we are going to worship the Lord We've turned our back on him, but now we are turning to him. And listen and imagine how different things were physically because that decision was made. I just want you to see it in the chapter. I mean, it's something pretty remarkable. So in verse 25, it says that he, he stations these Levites in the house of the Lord. And they have instruments. So there's the cymbals and there's the harps and there's the lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets and the Levites stood with their instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets and Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered. And when the burnt offerings began, there was musical accompaniment. The song to the Lord began and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, were played. The whole assembly worshiped. The singers sang. The trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves physically. Do you notice what's going on physically? They worship. Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites, sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped. End of the chapter is just like, what an exclamation point. And Hezekiah, all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people and he had done this thing like suddenly. Do you have the picture there? So they had gone from worshiping all the wrong things and now they have a posture of worship. They began looking at their circumstances and saying, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. They get a new, like, new songs they're singing. And 
I don't know, you can go all over the world and wherever God's people are, God's people sing. And I don't know whether that's going to be in your car or humming along or some sort of soundtrack, some sort of words you're going to take from Sunday morning and you're going to invest in the rest of your week. But God's people sing and they praise. And interestingly enough, there are things that go on with their body. I mean, they're bowing down and worshiping. I don't think there's a rigid code of all the things we must do with our bodies, but I do, like it's meaningful to me that people might fold their hands or bow their head. I don't think it's magical. I do think it's meaningful. You bow your head and go, you're God, I'm not. You're sovereign over us. You're the father. I'm a child coming. There might be reasons why you would close your eyes or why you would lift your head, why you would raise your hands and worship, why you would get on your knees, why you would fall before the Lord. I wonder if it's been like a long time since physically you've represented what's going on in your heart. And it may feel awkward and uncomfortable at first, but maybe, and again, I, I don't, I'm not prescribing a, a ritual for you as much as I'm saying, I think God does a work in our hearts and something happens. I mean, our, our actions are shaped by that work in our hearts. We turn, begin turning from something and we recognize, man, I thought I needed that relationship. It was everything to me. It was so important. And now I realize even if you take it away, I'm okay because I'm in your hand. Or I was so angry about this and I was so angry about the people messing up my life. And yet you've told me it's going to be okay and I can worship freely and I can sing in just a moment like we will, in Christ alone my hope is found. And those aren't easy words to sing. They're costly words. That word alone is like a, a hard one to say. But maybe God has just kind of broken you down. And now these are the words of your heart and God's people worship. Things look different, don't they? I, I want you to get one thing, like get the physical picture between all the mess that was going on in chapter 28 and all the difference in actions, like real activity in 29. And it's because God had done a deep work in their heart. What the world doesn't need is for us to be a reflection of the world, just a little bit nicer and a, a few different Sunday plans. The world has no need of that. The world needs people who have been so changed by the work of God, it flows out of, in our actions, our home, our value set, all of it looks different. The way we would sacrifice, the way we would love, the way we would forgive, the way we would be kind looks so different. That's what the world needs. I hope you don't hear like Cranky Curtis on a rant about, well, let's get, we need to get our lives in order. I hope you hear the searching spirit of God pointing things out in your life going, that, that can change and that needs to. Though my work in your heart should be producing a lot of different fruit than that. And it may be a little bit intimidating to take a step of faith, but I want you to take a step of faith as God walks you through a series of changes and probably challenges that are going to make you more like Jesus. That's what they're going to do. They will make you more and more like Jesus. And my prayer is that God's work in our hearts will show up in our actions. Let's pray. Lord, we need your work, deep work in our hearts to even take this step. I can imagine there are times where we hear this and we go, there are so many changes and there's so many things that, and, and we would have to cart off a ton of things in our life that just doesn't, that it just doesn't belong. So for that, I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we would be confident that you who started a good work would finish it. So Lord, do that. But I pray we wouldn't be satisfied with just talking about our hearts, but we would, we would not be satisfied until we saw it changes made 
And be patient with us, Lord, because it sometimes takes a while for you to uh, work out those changes in our life. But I do pray in our hearts we would be pursuing you. Thank you for your patience with us. We do place our hope in Christ, and thank you for the privilege of singing to him, singing about him. We ask all this in his name. Amen.